Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Today is a bank holiday in the United Kingdom, so instead of our usual offering, my colleague Sophie Coe called foreign correspondent Campbell McDermott, who's been reporting from Ukraine for The Telegraph for the past few weeks. Here is their conversation. I know that you are obviously just have just left Ukraine um, and you're now in Poland. A couple of months ago, we heard from people fleeing Ukraine who that there was extreme queues and massive waits at the border. What's your experience been of leaving Ukraine in a few months later than all the kind of chaos that we saw? A lot of that chaos has subsided now. Um, and, you know, a lot of those people who initially left a few months ago from places like the capital Kiev uh, are now actually returning. Um, so in some cases, there's been longer queues on the other side of the border coming back in. Um, there are still people leaving, particularly from the east, as Russian forces are still advancing in the Donbass region. So there are you know, people who leave when fighting comes close to their villages or their cities. And some of those people are just becoming displaced within Ukraine. But some of those people are still leaving. Um, but it's all become quite orderly. I left um, the capital Kiev last night and I wanted to take a train to Poland, but they were all sold out until next week. So instead I took a train to a border town called Lviv and then uh, got someone to drive me to the border this morning and then I walked over just on foot. But it was all pretty orderly. There, there were not particularly long queues there at all. And, and you mentioned getting a train. We've heard in the last week or so that the Russians have been targeting kind of key parts of Ukraine's train network. Are the trains all still running? And it... it, it I'm I'm surprised, I guess, to hear that you can just jump on a train from Kiev, obviously bearing in mind that your trip was sold out. Yeah, I mean, the, the Ukrainian railways have done a um, fantastic job of keeping their service running throughout the war and, and running a very good service for the most part. When I came in as well, I caught a train from uh, Lviv to, to Kiev, an overnight train, and that was quite eerie because the air raid alarms were going off while we were waiting to get on the train. 
and the train station was evacuated and it was um, right before curfew as well. So it was not sure whether the train was going to go or not, if we were going to be allowed to go back in the, in the station and it was all blacked out as well. And in the end, the train did go a few hours late and, you know, took us to Kiev, you know, a little bit behind schedule. But yeah, they, they've kept running. They've played a really important logistical role, both in, in, in bringing in supplies and, and bringing out, you know, um, displaced Ukrainians. I, I know you've also been to train stations in Ukraine where actually they've turned more into kind of underground villages or bunkers and that's another way that these train stations have become kind of hugely important to the Ukrainian people do you can you describe how it was visiting these kind of um stations slash bunkers yeah I mean because Ukraine finds itself in a an existential battle everything is sort of taken on a dual purpose and it has its original role and another wartime purpose and the same with Ukrainians, everyone still has their job, but then you know, in their free time, they're volunteering and they're doing something else. So the metro stations have become bomb shelters as well. And so, you know, when when Kiev was under heavy bombing, there were you know people living down in the metro stations there, and they had mostly left um, by the time I arrived a month ago, because um, shortly after then it became clear that the Russians were withdrawing and were no longer trying to take the capital. But when we went. Um, to Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv, um, which is in the northeast. That's just a few miles from the Russian border. And that town was under continual shelling in the northeast neighborhoods. And so people there had been living underground in these uh, metro stations for 50 days when we visited and you know, barely going outside. Or some went, some would go home to shower or to get a change of clothes and come back, and some people just wouldn't come out at all. So you just had this entire subterranean um, you know, ecosystem of uh, people living and sleeping, and you know, they had their cats and their dogs, and they were getting fed down there, and they had some sort of rudimentary toilets and, and facilities down there, and they would arrange concert with uh, you know orchestras playing and and uh, children's activities to try and keep the the kids busy and you could hear the whole time shelling not far away you feel the slight pressure change in your ears as the kind of shock waves passed overhead and the, the walls would sort of vibrate slightly and then the people were living down there through that but then you know if you, if you drove 15 minutes away it was um I wouldn't say life is normal, but I mean, it was certainly you could walk around in the streets and, um, you know, people were going to supermarkets to, you know, buy supplies and, and that kind of thing. So it was quite striking as well how you could move from, um, you know, something that felt very much like an active war zone to something that was much closer to normality and you, you would move back and forth between those spaces. How did they react to you, I guess, as a British journalist? coming into these situations obviously we've spoken to our other correspondents out there and they've certainly experienced a kind of mixed reaction to being there the importance of reporting the stories but also the the difficulty of uh, of of saying of leaving i guess yeah i mean particularly coming in you know meeting people on their 50th day down there there was certainly a lot of fatigue and you know a lot of people had been speaking media and had got sick of it and you know you, you see that trajectory often covering these kind of things that initially people have 
great enthusiasm for speaking to the media in the early days. And then over time, they realize that things don't change, you know, just because the media has been there, you know, there's this kind of hope that, you know, if you could just get the story out, then things might change. But all too often, that's not the case. And sometimes people get quite disappointed and and sort of lose faith in, in the ability of the, of the media to affect change. But then, you know, that's that's totally fine if people don't want to speak. You know, there's, there's normally someone else who does want to speak. And um, in those kind of contexts, you just want to find the people who, who are comfortable speaking to you it's not like you're trying to doorstop a reluctant politician. You know, if someone doesn't want to speak, that's totally their prerogative. And um, you just look for people who are keen to speak, and there's still plenty of those people who, um, you know, whether it's just out of boredom and they, you know, it's nice to have a chat and see a, a you know, a, a different face, or, or because you know they want to get their story out. And you know, for the most part, um, we didn't have a, a problem working with, you know, speaking with Ukrainian civilians and, and getting their stories. And on the logistics side of things, when you are reporting these stories, I'm imagining that you're accompanied by a kind of team of um, maybe translator, photographer, who, who, has been, who has been with you over the, your weeks in Ukraine? Yes, so for the most part, I've been working with Heathcliff O'Malley, who's a, um, a photographer who's been working with The Telegraph for over 20 years um, in all sorts of, um, you know, hot spots and war zones all over the world. So he was highly experienced, had a lot of experience to draw on. And then we were relying on a local translator and fixer, a guy called Ilya Novikov, um, who I got his contact from someone he hadn't worked before as a as a um, translator or a fixer with journalists, but he had the right kind of can-do attitude. And um, I gave him a, a tryout and we went out for a day and had a good day together. And then um, we, we, we took him on the road with us for three weeks and um, he was our um, absolute lifeline because we couldn't do anything without him, whether it was you know, filling up gas at the petrol station or, you know, organizing an interview with, with the mayor of um, a city. Um, so he, he was sort of our, our um, secret weapon for all of the reporting we did. It, it, it's not just the, the translation they offer. You know, when, when you parachute into an unfamiliar context, like I did going to Ukraine, you know, I'm normally reporting in the Middle East. I lack all of that background and context. You know, you can download a couple of books on your Kindle and try and work through them at night when you get back to your hotel room, but there's a lot of catching up to do. So I relied on Ilya a lot for just telling me what was going on. He, he was plugged into all the right Telegram channels. Um, you know, whenever we spoke to someone, I'd also ask, you know, what was your impression of this person? You know, did you know? Tell me more about what you thought about what they said. You know, was it plausible or, or you know, does that gel with what else you've heard? And I would get him to read through my stories before I filed for his comments. Um, so yeah, he 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 was essential. You mentioned kind of travelling around. I know you've spent some quite a lot of time in the Donbass region. Where else have you been whilst you've been out in Ukraine? So I. A little over a month ago, crossed the Polish border and went to the town of Lviv, um, which is in the west and relatively normal and 
one of the places that is less affected by the war, although it has been a hub for, for a lot of refugees coming out and has been targeted in a number of missile strikes. Um, but I, I, I quickly took a train, as I said, to the capital of Kiev and spent a couple of weeks there reporting as Russian forces withdrew from around the capital. Um, you know, they left behind this kind of trail of um, destruction and terrible stories of, of what they'd done under the, the occupation. So I reported on that for a couple of weeks before we took a car and drove out east. We were expecting, you know, that with Russia's withdrawal from around the capital, that they would refocus their efforts and attacks in eastern Ukraine, so the Donbass region where Russia's backed separatist forces since 2014. They now want to, it appears that they want to seize either all of the Donbass region or maybe the, um, all of the Ukraine's southern coastline. So we went first to Kharkiv in the northeast, which is the second city. It's a big city of a million people, and that's right up there on the, the Russian borders, just, I don't know, 20 miles away or something like that, and, and Russian forces are just a couple of miles outside the city or perhaps even closer in the northeast part. So that was a city that was under fairly constant shelling in parts of it and there'd been sort of significant missile strikes at times in other parts so that that felt like the war was coming a bit closer um when we were there you know that um so we didn't actually spend too long in Kharkiv because um you know it was not the most safe place to be parking up for a long time so we drove down to Dnipro which is further down on the on the Dnipro river it's a fairly major city in the southeast and that's also become a, a hub for people coming out of the Donbass region so you're able to you know interview displaced Ukrainians there and that's also become quite an important logistical and strategic hub so a lot of the Ukrainian military material and, and reinforcements and so forth go through Dnipro and that the city and the region itself has become quite heavily fortified so it's, it's generally thought that even if the Russians do manage to take the Donbass. They're probably not going to get into Dnipro with its, its heavy fortifications. And from there, we're also able to go a little bit south to Zaporizhia, where a lot of the Ukrainian civilians fleeing from Mariupol were arriving. So that's you know one of the the cities on the southern coast, which has you know been besieged by Russian forces and has now largely fallen except for one um, group of Ukrainian forces holding out in the, uh, the steel plant down there. But there's still a lot of civilians trapped in the city who were trying to get out. And so, you know, it was, it was difficult to cross, um, you know, active fighting zones and then move through a lot of Russian checkpoints to get out. So we were able to go down there and meet people who were coming out after you know, 60 odd days of living in their basements and um, surviving in quite harsh conditions. So we um, heard a number of interesting stories like that that were very moving. And then the last place we went um, before I came out, we went east into the Donbass region and we went to a town called Krematorsk, which is now surrounded on at least three sides by advancing Russian forces and it's kind of in the middle of a, an area that looks like it could eventually get surrounded if Russian 
forces are successful in their advances, they seem to be sort of creeping forward, um, sort of taking villages after quite heavy bombardment. Um, so that was another place where the, the war felt a bit closer. When we were there, we met a British charity, Refugees, um, and a, a guy called Guy Osborne, a math teacher from Kent. And so he'd driven a, a minivan out from Kent and was driving out to front lines and taking out elderly and disabled and immobile Ukrainians from, from frontline towns under shelling. And um, we, we spoke to him and um, an American guy. He was working with alongside Ukrainian volunteers uh, one evening as they got back in from, from their day's work. Um, so it's, it's interesting that, you know, even in these uh, places, you still find um, unusual characters like that pop up and that they were doing you know, really important work um, on a kind of shoestring budget. And, I mean, that there's a, a whole host of experiences that, that you must have had over the past month. If there was one thing that you wanted with your unique on-the-ground experience of Ukraine to tell people back home or in England what what the situation is like and what's going on and what they need to know, what would that be? Well, I think the one thing that we're perhaps not getting a good perspective on, and that's um, the, the Ukrainians are very good with their propaganda and they're controlling the flow of information and presenting you know, a view of the conflict and that they're certainly fighting heroically, exceeding expectations for how they would hold out against a much you know, more powerful neighbor. One thing you get a sense of sort of elliptically um, and you get sort of glimpses of is that they're facing absolutely enormous casualties, I suspect, and I suspect they're much higher than are being announced. And I think that, that that's something that we probably don't have a good a sense of as we ought to, and that's just how high a price they're paying, you know, the, the human cost of this war. So, you know, we in the West are supplying them with weapons and things to help them hold out, but it, it's them who are, are fighting and, and dying in, I suspect, higher numbers than we are being told, you know, to defend their homeland. And um, that, that was the thing that I found... Um, most moving and the, the thing that I thought that you know in years to come we'll find out more about this and that you know dying in in quite high numbers and you know I wasn't able to get an accurate sense of that but you know we got glimpses of that at times and you know, we went to a, a cemetery and, and saw that they'd pre-dug 300 graves with a um, you know a backhoe um, since the war started and more than half of those were already filled up and that was just you know one military cemeteries and that that just kind of gave an indication that you know the deaths in this so far are much greater than in the you know previous eight years of conflict in the donbass from from 2014 up to till now and you know we, we got glimpses of it in other places we went to a forensics lab where they were identifying body parts because a lot of them dead there's not even a, a body left because, you know, this is a war that's being fought with artillery and missiles and, and rockets and things. So, you know, it's, people don't often die and meet death in these 
conflicts and um this this forensics lab in Dnipro was just filled with soldiers and relatives who were looking for a missing loved one or comrade and um that was just another glimpse into the the human cost of this war because you know every person that dies leaves behind a a family and and friends and you know the 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 loss you know radiates out from that one person and i think it's easy when we're discussing on this podcast tactics and strategy to forget the real human and personal impact of the human um the human stories that are coming out of this war and the absolutely absolute devastation of it so um yeah thank you so much for telling those and um your dispatches whilst you were out there because they do they really do um yeah tell the stories of the the people that are out there i want to ask you about one before we go if that's okay um just meeting the mayor of Dnipro, i was really interested in your interview with him what what was it like meeting the the mayor of a town under with this constant threat as you said of attack and and what 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 position are the are the mayors of these towns in and because i know we've heard of certain mayors defecting and certain mayors standing up in their town squares it would be really interesting to get a sense of of your your meeting with him sure i mean we just we i put in a request to meet him without any particular expectations just you know the bit of a, a fishing expedition to see, you know, whether he would be an interesting guy or not, perhaps that he could help us out with some some access. But a lot of I get the sense that this this war has really brought out the the best in people, whether it's, you know, from from President Zelensky who, you know, was a you know, as everyone knows now, was an actor who turned into a politician and was running the country with some sort of teething problems and difficulties and then when this invasion started you know became sort of had greatness thrust upon him in a way that you know has been really remarkable to watch and you, I think you saw that with just ordinary Ukrainians you met and um, I think there was a sense that you know whatever people's past had been before that people were genuinely really committed and doing their absolute best for the country and to their communities around them. And, um, yeah, I got that impression from the Dnipro mayor who, you know, he, he didn't claim to be, you know, the, the, the country's now sort of run by these military administrations, and he's not a military guy. So, you know, he, he wasn't there telling me about, you know, his heroic defense of the city or anything, but he just sort of told me, he, he, he told me his personal story and, and as an example of where the Russians got it wrong with Eastern Ukraine and assuming that people like him, who's an you know, ethnically Russian, Russian-speaking, Russian-educated, um, would would just naturally sort of fall in back into that orbit of, you know, Russia re- reasserting itself and reestablishing a kind of empire. And... Um, you know, I think the, this conflict has probably forced out a lot of the nuance that some people might have felt at one time or another about their identities as as Russian or Ukrainian. And, um, you know, it's really forced, uh, as far as I can tell, a lot of these Russian-speaking Ukrainians to identify more strongly with Ukraine than 
any point in the past. And for that reason, you know, Putin and Russia's strategy towards Ukraine appears to have just backfired tremendously from, from what I gathered. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Today, Ukraine The Latest was produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Alice Hearing.